Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous supporters. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash donate. You're listening to Episode 10 of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries both supernatural and natural, anything that's strange, odd, and makes you wonder, the claims and counterclaims from the perspectives of both faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Fermi Paradox. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Uh, remember, folks, to, if we can, we I want to take this uh, moment to remind you to like Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on Facebook. We have a Facebook page, so if you can like us there and like the episodes as they come out, that helps a lot, uh, gets it so that other people will see it. Also, retweet us on Twitter, leave us comments on Facebook and on Twitter and on our website, wherever. Um, subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in your favorite podcast app or YouTube. And when you do subscribe on YouTube, hit the bell uh, to get notifications when the new podcast episodes come out. And Please share the podcast with your friends to help us grow our community of listeners and to reach more people. Uh, this is why we do it. We're trying to uh, get out there with a lot of very interesting content to connect with folks. And we, we think that this is a very interesting show and that more people would like to hear it. So you can help us by spreading the news. So uh, today's topic is the Fermi Paradox. So uh, the, the Fermi Paradox, what, what is the Fermi Paradox and who created it, Jimmy? Well, um, it was proposed by a guy, and where we're going with this is where are all the aliens if they exist? That's okay. the essence of the paradox. Um, it was proposed by a guy named Enrico Fermi, who was a major physicist in the first half of the 20th century. He was an, a native Italian, and he was one of the best physicists in the world. Uh, there were a bunch of great physicists at this time, and he was one of them. Because he was Italian, other physicists nicknamed him the Pope. <laughs> and and, um, and so he had a great reputation. He was known – he worked on the Manhattan Project, for example, that built the atomic bomb. Um, he made bunches of discoveries. Today, there's a class of particles named after him. They're called fermions. Um, so if you ever hear about fermions on Star Trek, they're getting the name from this guy. <laughs> um, he was known for, my memory is he was known for doing amazing things with kind of back of the napkin calculations. Like he would ha ask his students on the spot without going and doing any research, calculate the, or estimate the number of protons in the universe. <laughs> just knowing what you know. And, and there, and he, there would be ways to do this. Um, and so he was known with, uh, with kind of getting right to the core of an issue, um, in a very practical way that you might not expect. And so one day he was in a discussion, I think it was at lunch with some of his colleagues and they were talking about, uh, the existence of intelligent extraterrestrial life. And Enrico Fermi went straight to the heart of the question and said, where is everybody? You know, and his implication was if intelligent life is real and it's as common as people are saying, we should have evidence of it. Uh, we should have, we should have, uh, one way or another hard evidence that it exists because based on a quickie estimation, you know, the universe has been around for billions of years. And it would only take millions of years for an intelligent extraterrestrial species to colonize the galaxy. Uh, once you create self-replicating probes, you know, you send a probe to another star, to one star system, it spikes off several probes to other star systems. It's an exponentially increasing effect, and, or if not logarithmically increasing effect. And so it would only take a few million years to be everywhere in the galaxy. So if intelligent technological life exists and has ex has had the room to exist for millions of years, why don't we see aliens all over the place? And so that's the essence of the Fermi Paradox. Okay. So uh, with the Fermi Paradox, so um, 
that that's the claim. If intelligent aliens are real, we should have evidence of them, but we don't. And so the claim is, and what Fermi was claiming was, they're not real. Is that correct? Well, I don't know that he w- would go as far as claiming they're not real, but at least that's the question he raised. And many people would take the paradox and, and make exactly that claim. Okay. Since we don't have evidence and we should, they're not real. And so therefore the counterclaim is? Uh, that that intelligent aliens are real, and we either do have evidence of them, or there are reasons we haven't yet found the evidence that are good reasons. Okay. Uh, the, we could uh, refer people to our Area 51 episode for part, part of the yeah. answer to this, uh, but we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll get to that. So what do we so what do we know uh, here about the intelligent alien life? Uh, what is what is it we're we're working with here? Well, um, we know that we don't yet have clear, universally agreed upon evidence of intelligent life off Earth. Uh, there are people who who say, well, this is evidence, but it's not universally agreed upon. So it hasn't gotten up to a standard where it's so compelling that that it, a consensus is formed around it. Um, a lot of people believe in intelligent life, um, but most people would say, well, we don't have conclusive proof of it at this point. We just have probabilities. Sort of like uh, the Earth is round. Uh, there are still people who believe the earth is flat, uh, famously a few people recently <laughs> in the news. Uh, but but there, we have universally agreed upon evidence that the earth is a round sphere that we're all living on the outside. Yeah. In terms of moral unanimity, we have we have proof that earth is a sphere okay. and really darn good evidence of that. But that won't stop us necessarily from doing a flat earth episode in the future. <laughs> that would be fun. Um, the, and, but we don't have morally unanimous evidence or morally unanimous consensus that we have evidence for intelligent extraterrestrial life that we have come across. So, so tell me a little more about these, uh, the, the, this theory that if, um, given the timescales involved, an intelligent civilization somewhere in the universe could colonize the galaxy, say, Mm -hmm. within a few million years. Could you elucidate on that for me? Yeah. So um, another another scientist named uh, von Neumann proposed what's now called a von Neumann probe. And basically, it's a self-replicating probe. The idea is you'd build one. Actually, you'd build a bunch of them. You'd send them to nearby star systems. They would then mine the materials they need to make copies of themselves in those star systems. They'd build copies. They, number one, they'd survey what's in the system and send you back that information. And then they would make copies of themselves and send those on further to other nearby solar systems. And so um, if it took, you know, let's say you, you powered them uh, so that they could go 10% the speed of light. Well, in our for us, the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, is just over four light years away. So it would take about 40 years or a little more to get there. If it took it another 10 years to duplicate itself, it could be off to another star or set of stars within 50 years. And then you'd have another couple of generations of these things by 100 years out. And so if you imagine that happening on this Every if you if you go to a new just two star systems with two new star systems with each generation of these probes, uh, the first one starting with one probe would become two probes, would become four probes, would become eight probes, sixteen, thirty-two, sixty-four, hundred twenty-eight, uh, two hundred fifty-six, five hundred twelve, thousand twenty-four, two thousand forty-eight, and so on, and uh, and. It, it, they would quickly mount up that if, if it was 50 years per generation of these things, the sequence I ran through would happen in just a few hundred years and would keep doubling every time getting bigger and bigger. And pretty soon you would have visited all of the stars in the galaxy. Hmm. And so you'd have a map of everything, um, it, assuming that that progression kept happening it, and it really would only take a few million years at most 
to uh, to survey the entire galaxy and make contact with every star system, including the ones with intelligent life. You could then have your probe say hello to. And if there are multiple intelligent civilizations out there all doing this together, uh, the it increases the the, the time scale decreases before you would encounter one of them because exactly. Because, and and we yeah. and I, and we have to kind of keep an open mind about what it means for intelligent alien life to be like. You know, they they could be creatures that live for a thousand years, uh, where mm-hmm. where a hundred year generation is nothing compared to what it is is, is more like a decade for us. That sort of yeah. thing. Well, and if some of our transhumanist friends, you know, have achieved some of their goals, uh, like extending human life, I mean, we could live for a thousand years. Right. There's even a there's even a verse in the Bible that talks about that. <laughs> yes, we we could call them Methuselah probes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so okay, so we've we've got a basis for talking about the Fermi paradox and and why uh, why we should have encountered alien civilizations, intelligent alien civilizations. If they're out there, um, so from a so let's we we always approach it from both faith and reason perspectives. And so from a faith perspective, uh, what would what how would we approach this idea about intelligent alien life outside of Earth? From a faith perspective, one could take a couple of different viewpoints. One viewpoint, and I, I know people who would say this, is that God made only us human beings as intelligent beings in this universe. So we're all there is. Um, And therefore, there are no intelligent aliens off Earth. I know some people who who would be prepared to accept unintelligent life, especially microbial life on other planets, but they want to say, God made this universe for us. We're it. There are no intelligent aliens. And that's how um, they solved the Fermi paradox. The Trouble is, to my mind, it's not clear that scripture or tradition says anything like that. And in fact, scripture and tradition include at least one class of beings that are intelligent besides us and besides, obviously, God himself, and that's the angels. And based on the way uh, scripture describes the angels— Now, they're not physical beings, so they're not part of the physical universe, but God does seem to show an interest in creating multiple intelligent groups. So you've got human beings, but then angels seem to be divided into different groups themselves. Uh, Now, some people point out archangel versus angel. I don't consider that a real distinction. Archangel just means high-ranking angel. It's like an archpriest is a high-ranking priest. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are groups called things like the seraphim, the burning ones, or the cherubim, the living ones, that seem to be distinct subgroups of angels. And if so, it seems like God has created multiple different intelligent groups. Uh, We know one of them is physical in nature, uh, physical, spiritual, that's us. But there are seem to be multiple spiritual ones that are also intelligent. And if that's the case, it's it's perfectly reasonable to propose that um, that there could be multiple physical ones as well. And so uh, if based on the findings of science, Earth is not super unique, you know, it's not the center of everything. It's not the only planet like this. Um, It's there are other, you know, planets with similar environments and similar histories it's to be expected that you would likely have intelligent life somewhere out there besides us. So you could take either of those faith perspectives. I tend to incline towards the latter one. It's a tiny tangent, so I don't want to go off too uh, on this too much. But mm-hmm. the the question, is, could, could there be a physical, an intelligent physical, but not spiritual life? Um, it's it, potentially. Um, and that's something we might actually want to get off into in an additional episode. Basically, so you can have, hypothetically, you could have a system that is like a computer that could mimic human and level intelligence, that could pass the Turing test, which has been proposed for, you know, is if, if a computer can 
trick people into thinking it's a human based on communications with it, then mm -hmm. it's achieved a certain level of proficiency that that corresponds to our intelligence. Um, so you could have a, a life form that does that in a way analogous to the way a computer does. The and and maybe there would be a biological substrate to this such a being that allows it to do that. Um, but it's tricky because even though Christian theology generally recognizes that every living thing has a soul, uh, which is the life principle that keeps it going, mm -hmm. um, it's generally been thought that if you have an intelligent or rational soul, that it will survive death, and therefore you have a spiritual nature that that's capable of surviving this life. What would be possible, hypothetically, and this has actually been proposed by some people, is that we're living in a post-biological universe, meaning that um, alien races tend to go the transhumanist route or transalienist route, where as they develop uh, technology, they modify themselves and eventually are replaced by by mechanical life forms uh, that are based on them. And these mechanical life forms actually could potentially be intelligent, but yet lack any life principle, lack any soul because they're artificial. So if transhumanism or transalienism in this case is common, we could actually have uh, beings out there that are not technically alive and therefore are purely physical but that do ape human level intelligence or even exceed it. Mm. Transformers, uh, essentially. <laughs> if, if you say so, that's that's a little after my time. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so uh, very we we do we do need to come back to this because that's a very interesting discussion that I would love to have. Uh, but let's stick to, um, to to the to the basics here. So that's the faith perspective. What what does the reason perspective tell us about uh, the possibility? of intelligent alien life? Well, um, there are a bunch of solutions. In fact, in the show notes, we're going to have a reference to a book that covers 75 different wow. solutions to the Fermi paradox, uh, some of which are not entirely serious, um, but they are things that have been claimed. Basically, these fall into three classes of solutions. Type 1 solutions say that intelligent life is too rare for us to hear from it. Type 2 solutions say intelligent life exists, but there are good reasons we haven't yet heard from it. And type three solutions say intelligent life exists and we have heard from it. Uh, so those are the three basic classes. And I think it would be good if we spend a little time talking about each. Okay. So let's talk about the type one. Intelligent life is too rare for us to hear from it. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, just uh, so th is that sort of like, you know, if they're in the same galaxy, sure, but what if they're on the other side of the universe? Yeah, exactly. If something is intelligent, but it's it's way, way, way far away, you know, billions of light years away, then um, we wouldn't have any effective way of contacting it. Because even if you can colonize your own galaxy in a few million years, going billions of light years to galaxies far, far away... <laughs> is something we may not have had anybody have time for to stumble across our galaxy yet. So if there's, let's say, on average, one intelligent civilization per galaxy, we wouldn't necessarily expect that we would have heard from another such civilization. It would, it would be, it would, they would not have had time, it is claimed, to be able to contact us. Okay. And so the other parts of that is, is that um, it's just, too darn hard to get life going, intelligent life going. Yeah. So, and there are several kind of stages to that. Uh, some people would say, so the, the threshold question is how hard is it for life to start? And that's a question we don't know the answer to yet. Um, a lot of people, including people like in the intelligent design and creationist community, will uh, point out or claim or argue that getting living matter out of non-living compounds is really hard. And would we would this this is a phenomenon known as abiogenesis or the creation of life from non-life. 
And even though it's relatively easy to come up with organic compounds by ordinary processes, it is not at all easy to get them turned into the um, machinery necessary to run a living cell. Uh, some have compared that to like having a, the chance of that happening to like a tornado going through a junkyard and assembling a jet airplane. You know, it's just you're, there's just too much randomness involved for for that to happen. And so some people would say life uh, abiogenesis is going to be an extremely rare event. And maybe we're the only place in the universe it has happened, or if not, it, it, it's going to be very uncommon, and there's not going to be anybody nearby that's like that. Even if the life gets going, though, it may not survive very long. A lot of solar systems are not stable the way ours are. Uh, in particular, <clears throat> we have our big buddy Jupiter here in this solar system, which is a great asteroid comet shield. Uh, we saw how just a few years ago, a comet plowed into Jupiter. Well, because Jupiter is so big and massive, it tends to attract, uh, gravitationally attract, objects that otherwise could fall into the inner solar system and smash into Earth, causing a huge problem. And so um, that would just be one danger. Another danger, in some parts of the galaxy, like closer to the center, the radiation levels are higher, and that can cause problems. Also, stars get closer together. They're more densely packed to where you may have some stars just for us on Earth. The nearest star, as I said, is just over four light years away. Well, you can have multiple stars within a light year of each other. And if any of those stars goes supernova, it can ruin your planet's whole day. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you know, even if life does get started on some of these planets, there can be dangers due to planetary instabilities or impacts or uh, solar variability. Some stars flare up in, in cyclical ways. Some of them go supernova. There's all kinds of things that can happen that could uh, cause life to go extinct. Then you can say, well, even if life survives, there's no guarantee it's going to go intelligent. If you look at the, and here's one where we have some data. If you look at the history of Earth, life has existed for about 4 billion years out of our uh, 4.5 billion year history. We've been able to show it goes back at least that far. But the vast majority of that time, it was not intelligent. Intelligent life, human level intelligence, uh, goes back somewhere between 50 and 50,000 years and 2 million years out of 4 billion. Um, in fact, we didn't even really have complex life forms on Earth until a billion years ago. For like the first three quarters of Earth's history, it was a germ world hmm. where there were only microscopic organisms. And then you had uh, an, uh, some kind of event that changed it, and you started getting more complex ones, but you didn't get anything intelligent until the last two million years, and it didn't achieve human-level intelligence until around 50,000 years ago, maybe. And then um, you only developed technology capable of communicating with an alien civilization about 80 years ago. So out of a four and a half billion year history for Earth, only 80 years of that have we had the tech to contact aliens. And if that's the pattern, then you could say, oh, there's loads of germ worlds out there. And there's probably some with plants and animals and dinosaurs on them and even apes and even cavemen. But very few are going to have human level technological intelligence. And then there's. Another problem, intelligent life may not survive very long, because once you start developing technology, you're going to discover element 92, uranium, mm -hmm. and all of the elements above it, like element 94, plutonium. And given that intelligence... Okay, so one thing about intelligence is it seems to be driven by conflict, because you need to outsmart whatever you're fighting so, for example, lions are more intelligent than zebras. 
And generally, carnivores are more intelligent than their prey animals because they got to outsmart them. Um, and it seems that human intelligence has in part been driven by conflict between humans, that as we've warred as a species, that's it's killed off the stupider members and a lot of the species and forced up the average intelligence. So it seems like our own intelligence is a product of an intellectual arms race. Well, if that's true for us, it's likely true of other life forms, because if you're an herbivore, you don't need intelligence to sneak up on a blade of grass, as right. Larry Niven once put it. <laughs> um, and so any intelligent life is likely to be to have a history of conflict and warfare. And that means once you discover element 92 and 94, you're likely to use them to make bombs. And we managed to avoid wiping ourselves out in the 20th century with atomic warfare, but we may have been lucky. Not right. every species may have have had peace prevail the way we did so we're, far. We're going to have an episode uh, coming up where we're going to talk about how we almost weren't so lucky. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, then uh, there are other possibilities of things that can happen that could cause intelligent life to wipe itself out. If it's not nuclear, it could be biological. You know, right. you could invent a plague that affects a little few more people than you meant it to, and it could it could ruin your civilization. Uh, also, transhumanism or transalienism is a possibility where your species gets replaced. You could have a robot rebellion, or you could transform yourselves in, or replace yourselves with robots in a transhumanist fashion. There are all kinds of things that intelligent life could do that would destroy itself. And so... Uh, some have proposed that any one of these things, whether it's getting life started, getting intelligent life um, to to develop, or getting intelligent life to survive long enough to make contact, are all bottlenecks that could eliminate lots of uh, potential species from going the route that would need to happen for us to hear from them. And uh, sometimes that last one is called the cosmic eraser effect that, yes, technological civilizations exist or develop, but then they quickly erase themselves. Mm. And in, in it, that case, we, we you know, the our existence is just evidence of, you know, being cosmic lottery winners in the sense of we beat the odds so far. So far. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, um, there's also one other solution that falls into this category, and it's the idea that we're the first to develop. Yeah. Um, there has to be now, it's improbable that we would be the first, given how long stars have been cranking out the right kind of elements to make intelligent life. Uh, you wouldn't have it in the first generation of stars because they were just fusing um, hydrogen into helium and other low order elements. Um, but then at, with the second generation of stars after the first went nova, um, you could start having uh, planets form and with heavier elements. And over the course of time, more heavier elements have become available that you would need both to develop life and develop technology. Um, and so you would think, given that there have been billions of years where our type of civilization had the raw materials needed to develop life and technology, um, you would think we wouldn't be the first, but maybe we are, or at least the first one in this part of the universe, in this galaxy, let's say. There has to be some first civilization. You know, in Star Trek, it had you had that progenitor civilization that in the next generation was revealed to be behind Klingons and Romulans and Cardassians and humans. Um, well, maybe we're the progenitors. I mean, it's, somebody has to play that role. And so that's another solution that would say intelligent life can and maybe does exist elsewhere, but we're the first to achieve the level of technology uh, needed to communicate over interstellar distances. Okay. So that's type one. That's the yeah. intelligent life is too rare for us to hear from it from other places. What's, what is type two? What are the type two solutions to this problem? So basically, they all say that intelligent life exists, and there are good reasons we haven't heard from it yet. One solution I like here, although I don't think it's fully satisfactory, is so at this point, the way we would communicate is by radio telescope. 
that's what we have to, to do. We have radio telescopes that could communicate with other radio telescopes light years away. Well, and we've been listening for other civilizations that might be broadcasting radio signals. But maybe everybody's listening and nobody's talking. <laughs> and you might want to not talk because if you've realized that intelligent life likely grows out of an intellectual arms race, then any other intelligent life out there may be violent and maybe you want to keep your mouth shut and your ear to the ground, so to speak, to be looking for potential threats, but not saying, hey, we're here in the solar system. Come visit us, aggressive, intelligent aliens. <laughs> we're obviously more technologically advanced than we are since you can travel between yeah, solar systems. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, I said that I don't think this one is – I actually personally think that this is the policy we should follow of listen but don't talk until, until we <laughs> yeah. know a lot about the others. But I, I can't say this solution is fully satisfying because we've already been talking. Um, we've not only been sending out uh, signals via radio and television that could be picked up. We've even deliberately tried to talk to aliens. I mean, we had – now, this was more of a gesture than anything else. But, you know, Carl Sagan had those golden records put on the space probes uh, to yep. communicate with aliens and and – Tell them the location of our solar system, even relative to various galactic landmarks. <laughs> really? You sure you want to do that? Um, but we've also, uh, with radio telescopes, sent messages to, um, to other, uh, to stars out there. Back in the seventies, we did that. Uh, there was a really lousy, like eight bit, 16-bit graphic representation of a human and a DNA molecule that we beamed out there. <laughs> um, and more recently, uh, they, they took a number of megabytes worth of Twitter tweets and oh beamed my. them out. So <laughs> <laughs> that's just basically saying stay away. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so we actually have communicated. And so the idea that everybody's listening and nobody's talking is implausible based on our own history, although it could be true that most people are listening and deliberately not talking most of the time. Okay. So uh, another op. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say. So then, what's the uh, the next option uh, for or solution? Well, another is that um, that we're not listening in the right way uh, because we're tending to listen at certain frequencies. And of, of the electromagnetic spectrum that are convenient for us to communicate on. And we're looking for communications that are recognizable given the kind of data patterning that we use, um, which is, you know, you establish a signal, you modulate the signal to communicate information over it, and then you listen to it with a radio device. Well, okay, that worked for the days of radio and broadcast television, but now, uh, but there are other possibilities, especially if you take um, solar privacy secretly, uh, to coin a term, then um, you might want to encode things so that they look like background noise, uh, because that's also possible. And mm. so um, it could be that aliens out of privacy reasons or other reasons um, are communicating with each other over radio frequencies, maybe even the same ones we're using. They're just doing it in a way that's not obvious to us because of the way the information is scattered out among different frequencies, and you don't see the whole picture unless you know where to look. Um, so that's a possibility. Another possibility is that a civilization may only use me media that we can detect for a very short period of time. Uh, back in the early part of the 20th century and then in the mid-20th century, we were blasting out radio and television waves like crazy. Now, most people have cable. Mm -hmm. And we're not doing general broadcasts anymore in the same way. Uh, we may uplink to a satellite and then downlink to individual people's uh, devices but we're not just broadcasting the same signal everywhere in the same way, um, which has various efficiencies. 
if you're in space and you want to really communicate high, large amounts of data over a uh, long distance, you might want to use lasers to do it rather than radio waves because laser beams are tightly focused, they're coherent light, and so they tend to stay together in the same in, in in a in a tight package relatively speaking they do spread out over time but if it's easier to broadcast information through a laser over a long distance because it's just a narrow beam relatively speaking rather than filling the whole sky with it that's going to be much more energy consumptive there there might even be a case where they're using uh principles of physics that we're no, not yet aware of to right, communicate absolutely. along uh, dark matter strings, say, or something you know, equally seems crazy to us now or nonsensical. But for them, they've discovered that a millennia ago, and that's how they, they use, and we can't detect it. Exactly. Um, it could be gravitational waves or mm -hmm. something like that. So there's lots of possibilities. And if scientists are right about dark energy and dark matter, there's lots of undiscovered physics that we haven't found yet. So... Um, so all of those are possibilities. Civilizations may develop out of the radio TV stage too quickly for us to make contact with them that way. Um, it could also be that their intellects are just so different from ours that we can't understand or recognize their communications. It's just too, too weird for us. Then there's a final one that fits into this category, or a final one that we're going to talk about today. There are others among the 75 I mentioned, um, which is that we're under quarantine. The, it, it could be like in um, The Day the Earth Stood Still, that other civilizations nearby that could communicate with us have decided those humans are too barbaric for us right now. We're going to leave them alone. Um, and only they haven't sent Michael Rennie to tell us about this yet. <laughs> um, the, or similarly, they could have a prime directive. Uh, you know, just like we don't want to intrude ourselves on the various tribal groups that remain uncontacted, what few there are, um, in the world today because we don't want to just destroy their culture accidentally. Um, they could have the same thing with us. They could say, okay, until a culture reaches a certain level of development, we don't want to contaminate it. We want to let it on its own and, um, and, and, and maybe covertly help them out, but not just barge in and overwhelm their culture because we've seen what happens here on earth, even when a technologic, more technologically advanced culture starts making contact with a less technologically advanced culture, it tends to overwhelm it and have all kinds of unintended side effects. So there may be a prime directive that's out there in the galaxy that's keeping us from having contact. Okay. So those are type two solutions that uh, the supposed intelligent life exists, but there are good reasons we haven't heard from it. And so the third category you mentioned, the type three solutions, is that intelligent life exists and we have heard from it. It's just not generally known? Right. Although there are some, and that's true, but there are some, some different ways that can play out. One of them, uh, so when, when Fermi proposed his paradox, one of the early responses, I don't know that it was at the same lunch, but one of the early responses came from, uh, I think it was the astronomer Fred Hoyle, if I remember correctly, um, said, oh, yeah, um, the, the aliens exist and, and they're here. We call them insects hmm. uh, because he didn't see he didn't see how insects fit in with earthly uh, biological <laughs> evolution. Now, I think today no, no serious scientist is going to entertain that now that we've seen their DNA right. uh, and can see how related it is to everybody else's. However, Fred Hoyle also um, – advocated a theory which uh, a bunch of people have called um, panspermia. The idea of panspermia is that the seeds of life are everywhere and they drift through space and alight on different planets. And this is one of the ideas uh, behind how Earth could have developed life so quickly after its formation. Uh, maybe the same comets that brought water to Earth brought early extremophile germs to Earth, and that's how life got here, and then it developed from there. 
Well, some people have even proposed directed panspermia, that a civilization of progenitors might directly launch um, clouds or other delivery systems of biological extremophile microorganisms at star systems as a way of planting life in them. And if that were the case, then we could, according to this theory, uh, be the product of, of directed panspermia. And so we could ourselves be evidence of intelligent extraterrestrial life. We just haven't recognized that yet. Hmm. Interesting. Now, that's not the most common uh, view that goes into this category, though. Um, another more common one is the ancient astronauts theory that we have been in contact with aliens in the past and they've left evidence of their existence in various forms in that we do have either in um, monuments or carvings or artifacts uh, that were made perhaps by them or at least by humans who had contact with them. And so, you know, this is the kind of view that was explored in Eric Von Daniken's uh, book, Chariots of the Gods, uh, for example. Also, more recently, uh, and he, he, this gentleman has passed away now, uh, Zechariah Sitchin uh, claimed that he wrote a whole bunch of books claiming that we had evidence from ancient Mesopotamian writings that there is a 12th planet in our solar system. Yes, 12th. Um, which he called Nibiru, which has a highly elliptical orbit and would swing into the inner solar system every several thousand years, and that beings from the Nibiru, uh, beings from Nibiru, uh, had contact with Earth and played a role in human development. And the Babylonians knew about this and wrote about this. And those beings are called, according to him, the Nephilim. Well, even though he claimed to be a scholar of ancient languages, he wasn't. <laughs> and this is all made up nonsense. Mm. But one could, you know, say, okay, maybe we have had contact with aliens in the past, and maybe there's some kind of record of it in archaeology that uh, some people have recognized, or maybe not everybody yet, but it's, you know, something that can't be logically ruled out. The most common theory of this type, though, is the UFO hypothesis that UFOs represent extraterrestrial intelligent technological life that has come here. And so the answer to Enrico Fermi's question, where where is everybody, is they're here right now. <laughs> they're flying around our skies, and some of them may be even abducting people. Um, and for either as part of a, a survey or some more sinister project, which we can talk about in future episodes. Mm. So, uh, so that's the, that's the most popular one. And, uh, even though, as I mentioned, we don't have universally agreed upon evidence that, uh, that we have had contact with extraterrestrials, most people in America are favorable to the existence of extraterrestrial life and actually favorable towards the UFO hypothesis. It is not a fringe minority position by any means. Mm, interesting. And and of course, we are definitely going to be doing, I'm certain, more than one episode on uh, the UFOs and UFO oh, hypothesis yeah. and experiences. Uh, Lots so more. Stay tuned for that. So uh, so we've gone through the faith perspective, the reason perspective, and the three types of solutions to the Fermi paradox. Jimmy, what's the bottom line with the Fermi par paradox then? The bottom line is the Fermi paradox remains a mystery. Um, I, I don't find any one of the solutions to be absolutely compelling. And so for me, it remains a mystery. So there could be until intelligent alien life out there, uh, mm -hmm. and, and we cannot rule it out and we cannot rule it in just yet. Uh, yeah. that's, that's my favorite way to end, end these episodes is, is to say, <laughs> Hey, it's possible. Uh, that's yeah. great. So we'll have some further resources in our show notes on our website and in various places. Um, Jimmy, you mentioned a book, uh, yeah. with, uh, 75 solutions. Yeah. It's by a British scholar named Stephen Webb. And his book is called, if the universe is teeming with aliens, where is everybody? And he offers his own personal solution in chapter 75. Excellent. And also uh, it's, these chapters are brief and easy to read. 
Okay. And some of them are quite funny. Uh, one of his solutions is the aliens exist and they're throwing uh, throwing rocks on the roof of this house in of this guy in Eastern Europe, <laughs> which which is what the guy claims. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then we'll, as, as we often do, we'll have a link to a uh, Wikipedia article on the Fermi Paradox. Yeah. So that brings us to uh, feedback, folks. We love your feedback. We're getting great feedback from you. We love to have uh, back and forth and discussion. Uh, please send your comments on, on, on social media, on our website. Uh, and you can also send it via email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Sqpn.com. I got to make sure I say that slowly so that you understand me. Uh, mysterious at sqpn.com. You can also send us an audio file, attach it to an email. That will work great. And we can play. People can hear your voice. So let's uh, uh, go a couple of these uh, messages we got from folks. Um, first one is from Alfredo Barunda, uh, who had contacted us on Facebook. He says, I'm loving this new show. Having two Catholics explore the mysteries of our world is both enlightening and fun. I've loved the first three episodes. Well, thank you, Alfredo. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And keep listening. We've got a lot more planned. Oh, yes. Uh, and then uh, Sulkow821, which I think comes from YouTube. Yes. Um, he says, uh, in my uninformed speculation about construction, I think he's referring to the pyramids uh, mm -hmm. episode that we did. I always thought that especially the top stones is actually cement, which is die cast or mold poured into the shape of the blocks. According to my theory, the cement was poured, poured in place or at the very least near the top. It's easier to take up that height take it up to that height the materials to make such things rather than move them up by brute force he's talking about like the 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 problem where uh moving these massive blocks up to the top of the pyramid we're not sure exactly how they did it and so he's saying yeah. that maybe they though cast we, them in place yeah though we have some ideas of how they could have done it we're just not sure which solution is true yeah um in terms of this one i think the egyptians may have actually would have loved Selkow 821's solution um, of used cement because it would be easier to get, you know, bags of cement up there and cast in place. But I don't think that's how they did it. Um, one, although it's a great suggestion. One of the reasons is if they cast them in place, we should see the stones merge together because if you pour cement on top of a rock or other cement, it's going to bond with that. Right. And we, we should see bonding that we don't. Um, also, if memory serves, and we and uh, the if memory serves, the upper blocks simply are not cement. They're the same kind of granite the rest of the pyramid is made out of. And um, if I could be mistaken about this, but based on my knowledge of ancient Egypt, I don't think they had cement. Um, if they yeah. did, a lot of they would have used very different construction techniques in their monuments. We know the Romans had cement. Um, and if you go to Rome today, you can see, you know, cement things that Romans, uh, poured, but, um, but I don't think the Egyptians had cement at this point. Yeah. In fact, I'm not even sure that you have the raw materials for cement. Yeah. I don't know if they had enough lime, for example, because right. you need like limestone or something like that. In addition to sand. We may want to do an episode in the future on uh, Roman cement construction or some Roman, like, uh, the Pantheon, which is the. Mm -hmm. largest uh, unsupported cement structure in the world. It's still standing 2,000 yeah, years later. It's awesome. I've been there. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. cool. I love how you go in and it's got this circular opening to the sky right at the top <laughs> that casts this shaft of life that, of light that moves around the Pantheon as the <laughs> sun moves in the sky. It's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, then uh, our last bit of feedback for this show is uh, from Marendre which uh, I'm, I'm not sure where we got this from. Maybe it might also be on uh, YouTube. Uh, it says, uh, hi, Jimmy. Thanks for your interesting segment on Watergate. Uh, one tiny observation, though. I don't believe that Gerald Ford was ever a senator. I believe he was the minority leader in Congress before he was appoint appointed vice president. Uh, keep up the great recordings, they say. Thank you very much, Marindra. You're absolutely right. I misspoke. I had misremembered his position as a senator when, in fact, you're correct. He was the House Minority Leader. Right, which makes his elevation uh, to the presidency uh, even more remarkable uh, like that. Uh, okay, so that's our feedback for this week, and uh, we'll move into mystery headlines. Uh, go ahead, Jimmy. So our first mystery headline is about an uh, an AI translating hearing aid. Mm. Uh, what this is, you put it in your ear like a, any other hearing aid, 
<clears throat> and it will translate for you the words that are being spoken to you in another language. So if you're traveling in China, let's say, someone's speaking to you in Chinese, you will hear it in your ear in English. Uh, it also, I gather, works with your smartphone, so it can show you what you want to say back. Mm -hmm. You can speak out loud, and it'll show you a display of this is what to say back in Chinese, um, right. so you'll know what to say. Um, and so this is basically another step towards the universal translator that we see on Star Trek. And in fact, if you watch the Little Green Men episode of Deep Space Nine, where Quark and uh, Ram and Nog travel back <laughs> to 1947 Roswell, you'll even see them adjusting the universal translators in their ears um, for, uh, for 20th century English. And uh, so this is, uh, this is uh, getting close to that. Yeah, the, I read the article uh, myself, and uh, the the earpiece is as small as a regular Bluetooth, but most, because they offload most of the processing to the smartphone, which mm -hmm. is uh, pretty amazing. I mean, the, these smartphones are amazing. Uh, yeah. uh, and then we have another headline as well. Yeah, um, recently scientists uh, announced that they found water in the atmosphere of Jupiter. It looks like there are water clouds there which, of course, raises the possibility of life. And they talk about that as well, uh, which would then confirm an old episode of the Bob Newhart show from the 1970s where <clears throat> Bob and his wife are watching a news broadcast that announces that there's life discovered on Jupiter, and then their neighbor, Howard Borden, turns off the TV <laughs> before they can hear any more about it. And when they bring it up later, he says, oh, yeah, it was just some mold they discovered. <laughs> it was like even mold in the atmosphere of Jupiter would be a huge discovery I would want to know about. That would be yes. So uh folks that's uh, that's it for from us for this time. Um we again want to remind you to like, comment, subscribe, get notifications and share the the mysterious world with folks. Uh help us to spread the news about this podcast. Um, so, but also we want to hear from you. What did you think? What do you think of what we had to say about the Fermi paradox, about the various solutions, about the faith perspective? Um, we really want to hear from you. So let us know by going to sqpn.com or to the SQPN Facebook page or the new Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World Facebook page. If you if you search for that in on Facebook, you'll find it. Um, leave us some feedback. And or uh, send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. You can find links to uh, our resources on the Fermi Paradox uh, on our show notes on sqpn.com, as well as links to our personal social media and our websites. And then until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World.